live in exciting times. Drones, UAVs, UASs, whatever you choose to call them, this technology is bringing new opportunity to industries of all kinds. Drones can help save lives, whether in search and rescue or for delivering humanitarian aid and disaster relief. They can enhance business processes, from planting seeds to inspecting bridges and cell towers. And they can improve lives by delivering medicine to rural areas or pizza to your teenager. But as with any emerging technology, new legal questions come up. What happens if my drone takes a picture of you while you're gardening or falls onto your car? I may not be authorized to operate a drone yet, but I am equipped to ask questions about what role tort law will play and who will help define it. I'm Oriana Senator, and this is Cause for Action. Cause for Action is brought to you by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform, the leading legal reform advocate in the U.S. and around the world. Learn more at instituteforlegalreform.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Oriana Senator, a senior vice president at the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, and welcome to another episode of Cause for Action. Here, we'll be exploring the fascinating world of drones. The list of commercial uses of this technology seems to be growing every day. But as lawyers, we see it from a unique angle. How does the law handle this technology as it becomes more popular? Where are the holes? And how does existing tort law apply? And who gets to decide how it evolves? To help answer these questions, we asked Joshua Turner to put together a paper called Torts of the Future Drones, which you can now find on the ILR website. Josh is a partner at Wiley Rhine, where he co-chairs the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Group. There, he provides counsel on how to comply with evolving drone regulation at both the federal and state levels, including how to navigate potential conflicts between these different authorities, all of which made him perfectly suited to help us with our research. I'm really excited about doing this podcast and uh, glad that you uh, gave me the chance to write the paper. It was a lot of fun. Great. So let's start with an important sort of fundamental question, um, because I think some people may be wondering why drones are the topic of a legal podcast. Um, I think the answer is simple. The number of drones is multiplying, um, and so is the risk of litigation. Your paper noted that as of a couple of months ago, I think there were almost 900,000 drones registered with the FAA, and that obviously raises some legal questions. So can you give our listeners an idea of the state of drone litigation in the U.S.? Sure, would be happy to. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about the the drone industry is that it opens this whole new frontier for uh, doing all sorts of really great work, right? For not just the delivery stuff that everyone talks about, but for rescue work and disaster restoration. There's all sorts of things that you can do. One of the interesting things about the drone industry, though, is that it has been a little bit constrained in terms of how it can operate because we haven't seen um, all of the regulations necessary to to allow drones to fly uh, come through as quickly as I think some of us had hoped. And what that means from a uh, litigation standpoint, from a you know what is the status of, of civil litigation in the United States standpoint, is that there while there are a huge number of drones registered and while drone operations are definitely increasing year over year we aren't seeing the level of commercial drone operation that I think some folks might have thought we would see uh, you know, five or 10 years ago, if you were looking at, at where we are today. 
There are a number of cases across the country in diverse courts raising a number of, of really diverse and interesting issues. Um, the couple that that really blazed the trail here, uh, there was the Singer case v. Newton in um, Massachusetts, which dealt with federal preemption. There was a case in Kentucky that everyone refers to as the drone slayer case that involved uh, a gentleman who had shot a drone out of the sky and then a subsequent civil lawsuit to try and, and get um, the court to say that there was a right to navigate over uh, that gentleman's property. But right now, pending, there are a couple of cases that I think everyone should be on the lookout for. Uh, there's the McCraw case in Texas, and this involves a challenge to Texas's fairly restrictive laws on um, drone operation. And the district court in that case found uh, a pretty broad First Amendment right for drone operators to fly their drones uh, and found that the Texas law didn't satisfy First Amendment scrutiny. And so we'll be watching to see what happens there uh, as it goes up through the Fifth Circuit. There's another case, um, the Zizmo case, I think is how you pronounce it, X-I-Z-M-O in New York that's pending right now, that also involves some of these issues about state regulation and what states can do in order to restrict the use of drones to, to take pictures and to, to capture media. Um, there's a series of cases that involve the Fourth Amendment, which are not really civil litigation cases, but will have a big bearing on how drone law develops overall. Uh, probably the best known is a case in Michigan called Long Lake that uh, an analyzed whether or not drones, uh, whether or not surveillance by drones was a, a First Amendment violation and, and came up with a fairly um, clear rule that said, yes, drones uh, have a different rule that applied to them because they're a different kind of technology. Um, and then there's a, a case that's pending in the DC circuit now that I think everyone should take keep an eye out for uh, that is a challenge to the FAA's remote ID rule. Uh, that case is called Brennan um, v. FAA, Brennan v. Dixon. Um, and uh, that case, because it challenges the remote ID rule, seems like it shouldn't involve Civil litigation seems like it shouldn't involve torts, but the theories in which the the petitioners in that case are pushing uh, that basically say everyone has a right to operate their drones in their backyards if they want to, you know, if the court accepts those theories and and overturns the FAA's remote ID rule, it could have a real impact on the way in which people understand property rights as they apply to drones. Great. Well. I think it's fair to say that there is a lot still in flux, um, a lot yet to be fleshed out um, in, in all those cases that you just referenced. Uh, and the paper talks about all this, of course, um, you know, how the regulatory and the tort landscape for drones is still being defined. Um, but it also sounds like there's a really diverse group of players that's trying to shape the future of, of these laws and this, and this regulation. So can you give us a few examples of who these groups are and what it is that they're trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is one of the things that I think is most interesting about the drone uh, tort landscape. Because it is so uh, novel as a technology and because it raises a number of questions that um, I think people haven't thought about in a long time in terms of, you know, what does it mean to have uh, technological development in the airspace? What does it mean to have aircraft flying over your house, um, you know, at a, at a lower altitude than you're used to seeing? Um, there are uh, a lot of unsettled questions and there are a lot of players, as you mentioned, who are in this space trying to push their own sort of theory about how this stuff should be resolved. I mean, of course, you have the courts and you have legislatures who are writing laws and interpreting laws. Uh, those are the players that you would expect to see in the sort of development of tort world. 
You also have regulatory agencies, and, and that's a huge deal in the drone space because the FAA plays such an outsized role in setting the rules for how drones operate um, and, and in setting the expectations for what drones can and can't do. Um, but in addition to those, you know, you might think of those as being the sort of government entities that are setting the rules. There are a number of uh, other entities that are really important to pay attention to. One is the Uniform Law Commission. And, you know, our listeners may not be super familiar with the Uniform Law Commission. Uh, I will confess that I wasn't a few years ago. Um, the Uniform Law Commission is probably best known for writing the Uniform Commercial Code. Um, and what they try and do is come up with uniform laws that are enacted in all 50 states so that even though, uh, you know, even in our federal federalist system, you don't end up having a bunch of really difficult to navigate patchwork laws in a particular topic area. The ULC took on drones a couple of years ago um, and tried to write a uniform law for drones as it applied to trespass to land, as it applied to, you know, whether or not a drone was trespassing when it flew over someone's property. Ultimately, the ULC, after a two-year process, was not able to come up with a satisfactory um, result that sort of squared the circle and satisfied all of the various different stakeholders. But it was a collaborative process that was, I think, really instructive for um, showing the, the different views that, that folks in this space have and underlining the difficulty that there is in coming up with some sort of novel rule that you would apply to drones and, and trying to do that sort of ex ante. In addition to the ULC, you have um, the American Law Institute, the ALI, and the ALI is responsible for doing uh, restatements. That's that's what they do. Um, the ALI is in the process right now of drafting a, a restatement of property, uh, and the restatement of property is an enormous undertaking. It involves, you know, as if you looked at a restatement, it's a huge set of volumes. Involves, you know, a restatement of the law in literally every respect as it applies to property. One of the the ways in which they're they're wrestling with this is what do drones mean with respect to property and uh, flights over land? Um, and so the property folks who are doing this restatement are trying to come up with a way to explain what they think the law is uh, for drone overflights for private property. Um, and we'll see where that comes out. We expect to see uh, a final draft uh, sometime this year. Um, you know, I think one concern that is percolating in the drone industry is that the restatement will be uh, too aggressive in terms of, of its uh, view of private property and will change fundamentally the way in which um, people understand property rights vis-a-vis uh, -vis aircraft overflights. Um, and so that's one, one really important thing for people to keep an eye on. And then I think the last group that I would sort of point to are um, think tanks. And there have been a lot of folks on various different sides of this issue who have spent a fair amount of time sort of thinking about drones and thinking about what drone overflight means. Um, the Mercatus Center is one, uh, Heritage is another, who spent some time thinking about this. Um, I, a lot of those think tanks are approaching it from a property rights perspective. And, you know, what is the threat to property rights from drones? Um, and I think that's another area where you may see some real risk to the drone industry because, uh, you know, drones need to have some freedom to fly in order to, to do the good that they can do. Um, and if we have an overly protective regime uh, that's being pushed by a number of these think tanks, I think, I think you might end up with a circumstance that uh, really harms the drone industry.
Great. Well, that was really, really helpful. I mean, I think most people expect, you know, government actors like Congress or the FAA to be working on this. But there are so many of these other sort of peripheral groups that, as you said, a lot of people may not realize are a part of this process and they could end up having quite an impact on, on how it all develops. So let's move up a little bit to 10,000 feet. Um, when you look at the evolution of drone torts, what areas of tort law do you see as the most relevant to that evolution? Yeah, and, and you know, I just want to make sure that everyone understands you can't fly your drone at 10,000 feet. So um, if you're the if you're flying pursuant to FAA regulations, you got to stay low. And that's one of the <laughs> things that's so challenging about the drone world is that drones work best when they when they fly. Uh, low to the ground. That's where they have the most promise in terms of all of the various different things they can do. And technologically, that's that's where it makes sense to fly them. Um, and that's the way that the FAA has has worked to integrate the airspace so far, right, is to have uh, a fairly sharp delineation between where drones uh, can fly, where small drones can fly um, below 400 feet, and where civil aviation can fly, which is generally above 500 feet. And there's some exceptions to all of that, but that's the, the general rule. All of that sort of important understanding the answer, I think, to your question, which is, you know, where do you see um, which which areas of tort law do you see developing sort of most in the drone space? I think the first one is privacy. Um, that's the issue that most people think of when they think of drones. Uh, the concern that most people raise when they when they talk about drones. If you talk to state legislators, the thing that animates state legislators most is, is constituent calls about, oh, I saw a drone flying over my house. I don't know who's flying it. I don't know what it's doing. It's invading my privacy. Um, the irony, I think, uh, about privacy as being an animating concern in the drone tort field is that drones do, I mean, they do bring capabilities in terms of, of information gathering that, that other technologies um, make harder or uh, less uh, accessible. Um, certainly it's easier and cheaper to fly a drone than it is to fly a Cessna, for example. But none of the challenges that drones bring in terms of, of seeing into people's property really are new. Um, and so when you talk about, you know, what does the privacy landscape look like and how are drones affecting the privacy landscape, I think you have to start from the proposition that we need to understand, we need to think about what people's expectations of privacy are. We need to think about what kinds of technological um, devices already uh, challenge those perceptions of privacy. And, and are drones really different? Do they provide, provide a real uh, new way of understanding privacy? Or are they simply part of the technological evolution that we've seen over the past 10 or 15 years in terms of new sensors and new abilities to gather information, um, do they really do anything that different? I think that's one question to ask. So another really important thing to think about when you're thinking about drones and um, torts is trespass to land. And that, as I mentioned in talking about the ULC, that is another area, and I think it's somewhat bound up in this privacy discussion, another area where people have a lot of concerns and say, look, I saw a drone flying over my land. It was flying very low. I feel like it's intruding into my life. Even if I, even if it isn't, doesn't have a camera, um, you know, I'm, I'm just worried about the fact that it's flying uh, low over my house and I feel like, like that's a trespass. Traditionally, um, trespass has not been understood to involve uh, aircraft, right? I mean, aircraft generally cannot trespass on land because they fly over it. Um, there is a 
doctrine of, called aerial trespass that um, involves substantial interference with the use of land. So like the idea is if a, an airplane flies so low over your house uh, and creates such a disruption to the use of the land that uh, you know it makes it impossible for you to carry on your business or carry on your life, that that, that is a tort. And that is something that you can um, seek compensation for. But that aerial trespass concept is very, very different from trespass to land. Trespass to land has traditionally been uh, a, a tort that is has been referred to as a dignitary tort, meaning you don't need to show any damage from it, right? All you need to show is that someone committed the action of stepping on your lawn. That's the tort. You don't need to prove damage. Aerial trespass is a very different kind of tort. And if we move to a world that is more like trespass to land applied to drones, right? So you don't need to show damage. All you need to show is that the aircraft intruded into the airspace over your house. If we if we move into that world, that's going to have a, a really deleterious effect on the development of the drone industry. And I think that's one thing to pay close attention to. And then finally, the other big uh, category of torts that are going to be huge for, for drones is negligence. I mean, this is the other thing that I think people are more and more thinking about when they're thinking about um, drones flying overhead, right? In addition to, are they taking pictures of me uh, or are they just sort of intruding into my life in a way that I don't like? Um, people are worried about what happens if the drone goes off course and crashes into their house or crashes into their car or crashes into them. And then the question there is the same for me as the question with the first two, uh, which is, do we need a different rule for drones? Um, there are already negligence rules in uh, states across the country that apply to negligent uh, you know, operation of, of vehicles, for example. Um, there are ways in which existing tort law already encompasses the kinds of damage that could be caused by drones. And I think we need to be very, very hesitant before we start going out and writing whole new doctrines of law that apply to a particular technology and we need to think carefully about whether or not the existing law that we already have, that everyone sort of understands and the the, the duties and, and so forth that already apply to folks, whether those can simply be applied to the new technology in a way that, that makes sense and that everyone can understand. Great, thank you. Um, clearly I have a lot to learn before I'm allowed to operate a drone. Um, <laughs> but yeah, your point about the privacy connection is really interesting because that area of law is also developing you know, as we speak. But as you said, we should definitely keep looking at traditional tort jurisprudence. Um, okay, so to close this out, when policymakers are looking at all of these different proposals and attempts to shape tort law in response to drones, what should they be thinking about? I mean, in other words, if you could wave a magic wand and shape the future of drone torts, how do you think that future should look? So if I could wave a magic wand and shape the future of drone torts, there are three things that I would think about. The first is I would encourage the FAA to be more proactive. In 2015, the FAA released a fact sheet that laid out what it thought the rules were with respect to state and local regulation versus federal regulation of drone operations. That fact sheet was always a little bit equivocal, never really sort of answered all of the very, very difficult questions and was not um, an actual legal document. It was just a, a fact sheet, the FAA's opinion. Um, in the years since, a number of courts have issued holdings or considered cases in the tort context and in, in areas related to the tort context, right? The Fourth Amendment context, uh, property rights under the Fourth Amendment, First Amendment context, all of these things that will ultimately have an impact on the development of drone torts. 
And in each of those cases, the courts were sort of left to guess about what the federal interest is in uh, this area. And if you look at the paper, we have a whole big section on preemption because I think preemption is really the elephant in the room here. Um, and the FAA just has not been clear uh, either in court filings or uh, in regulatory documents about where it thinks the line is between federal uh, interest and state interest. I know this is an issue that they've been very, very carefully studying. It's one that they've been talking about releasing um, an updated updated guidance on for a couple of years now. Um, could not come soon enough because uh, you know when courts are sort of left to guess what the federal interests are, sometimes they get it wrong. And you know, you're really sort of forcing the courts to, to make decisions with one hand tied behind their back. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, I would encourage people to be very, very careful in their prop, their proposed solutions to the uh, issue of low-level flights. A lot of folks um, have talked about, uh, and one of the new sort of topics that people are talking about is this idea of navigation easements. Navigation easements have been used in the, avi- the sort of uh, legacy aviation world um, to make sure that you don't build a building at the end of a runway, for example, right? So a runway goes, uh, an airport goes out and gets a navigation easement uh, with respect to the property surrounding the airport so that no one builds a giant building that blocks the approach to the runway. Navigation easements are, are a very well-known concept, but the new uh, thing that people are talking about doing is saying, well, hey, let's use that navigation easement concept to create um, pathways for drones to fly where they don't have to worry about the people underneath them. And, and there are a couple of problems there. I mean, one is it assumes that there are property rights in airspace that I don't think necessarily exist. Uh, and it assumes a world in which everyone on the ground can charge uh, a toll for people flying over their houses. Um, it assumes a world in which if you have those tollways, state or municipal entities can control those tollways and charge those taxes on the operators of, of drones in those uh those easements, which makes the industry more expensive. But more importantly, it makes the industry more dangerous because you're concentrating all of these flights into very particular narrow areas. And uh, perhaps just as importantly, you're getting rid of one of the big utility, uh, one of the big utility aspects of drones, which is their ability to fly anywhere. So I think any of those proposals, which I know a lot of people are, are offering up with the best of intentions, need to be very, very carefully studied um, I don't think that the the drone industry supports those those proposals, and I think they would have a, a really negative impact on the industry if they were adopted uh, around the around the country. And then, so the third thing that I would say, if I could wave a magic wand, right? The third thing that I would keep in mind is we should avoid specific rules uh, that apply only to drones. And I talked a little bit about this uh, in the last question that you that you asked, um, but I think it's worth reiterating. You don't want to write technology-specific rules unless you absolutely have to. Because the minute you start writing technology-specific rules, you can have a couple of different consequences that are negative, right? One is you create, um, you know, you can create a cul-de-sac where the rules are entirely different and people don't understand what they are, and you have to adopt a whole new set of behaviors in order to, to play in that space. Two, you can really damage the industry by putting onerous obligations on it that don't apply to anyone else, and you can you can create a competitive disadvantage um, you know, and for a nascent industry like drones, that that can be a real problem. Um, and three, the other thing, and and you mentioned this, Oriana, a second ago. There's, for example, in the privacy space, a big debate about what should happen with privacy. 
Um, if you start making technology-specific drone uh, rules that apply to drones, um, that can set the tone for the debate in other areas in a way that might not be beneficial. So if you say, well, we want to have X, Y, and Z rules apply to drones, um, and everyone says, well, okay, that's fine. It's it's just drones. We're going to create this specific drone cul-de-sac, and, and those are going to be the rules that apply to drones. It doesn't stay there. And eventually, it can migrate out and, and change the rules across the uh, other industries. And that may not be, you may not want to have the, the drone tail wagging the privacy dog, for example. So those are the three things that, that I would say everyone should keep in mind as they're thinking about drone torts and the evolution of drone torts. Well, that's a lot to think about. Um, also, that was more like a genie with three wishes and a magic wand. Um, <laughs> but the good news is that a lawyer, as a lawyer working in this drone space, you will definitely not be bored anytime soon. No, um, I don't think so. I, in <laughs> fact, I hope not. Certainly not. Uh, Josh, thanks very much for your time and insight, and of course, for your great work on our paper. No, I appreciate Fine. the opportunity. Thank you again. You can find Towards of the Future and other ILR research on our website at instituteforlegalreform.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.